Thank you for tuning in to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Johnson. Appreciate your time in dialing this episode up. If this is your first time, thank you. If previous episodes have been of value to you, please feel free to share. Give us a review. That is the greatest compliment we can get. This episode, I've got another great coach. He's a catalyst and coach's coach known for his ability to help high-performing leaders see things others don't see and find their sweet spot as they lead and motivate others in the 21st century. He's the founder of Coaches of Excellence Institute and the Coach O Consulting Group. After nearly 20 years as a college football coach as well, he spent over the last decade working with elite teams and organizations while teaching, coaching, and mentoring some of the top coaches and leaders in our country. I've had the opportunity to sit in his seminars and learn from him many times. I've known him for quite a few years. I consider him a friend. He's a great guy. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Coach Rod Olson. Take us from a college football coach to the work you are doing now. Mm. Well, first of all, Tyler, thanks for having me on. And, and uh, it's just awesome. Appreciate everything you're doing and appreciate Elevate and everything else. Just how you're, you're trying to make an impact and are making an impact uh, with leaders and, and also kids and everybody else. So I appreciate you and, and honored to be on here. Um, you know, I spent about, I don't know, roughly 17 to 20 years as a college football and baseball coach. And um, did a little high school basketball, too, at one point. But, um, you know, I thought I'd be a college coach forever. Uh, I wanted to be and thought it would be neat. And then, uh, you know, I'm a faith guy. So, um, I don't know, about two-thirds of the way through my career, uh, I, I ran into a guy that, that uh, actually taught me how to coach uh, quite differently and taught me how to integrate my faith into my coaching. And uh, we called it coaching biblically and competing biblically. And and uh, he started discipling me, and it changed everything for me. Um, you know, I wasn't a mean guy or anything like that when I was coaching. Uh, wasn't throwing chairs or beating up kids, but but I, I was a win at all cost guy. And um, you know, and and I was, I, I think I saw kids as a means to 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 uh, help my career more than and win games and get rings more than I saw it as an opportunity to turn boys into men and and really help help people journey in life. So um, and see uh, sports as a vehicle to help them grow. And, uh, and to, to help, you know, just change the world through sports. So uh, once I, I started doing that, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was at a lot of big schools and I was at some smaller schools and I was a head coach at three different universities. And, and I did all that, but then I felt like I just wanted to do what that guy did for me. Uh, I just wanted to go to, to uh, coaches' offices and, and uh, show them, hey, there's another way to do this where you can be a relationship-driven coach and you can uh, really see your, your, this you can still compete and still demand excellence, but you can really see this as an opportunity to, to change people's lives and change families' lives of the kids you coach. So um, I embarked on a job with FCA and uh, took over the uh, started the coaches ministry in Colorado. And uh, then I started training people all around the country on how to do coaches ministry. And we wrote some studies and all that kind of stuff on how to coach biblically. But then uh, my own kids were in youth sports in Colorado and uh, I started coaching in that league, and one of the presidents saw me coach and said, hey, I like how you coach. Could you help train our coaches and uh, our youth coaches? And I thought, yeah, I I'm, I'm, went from being a head coach at the college level to coaching nine-year-olds, so I might as well do something to help people. <laughs> but, um, 
so I started a, a, and that led to starting a nonprofit called the Coaches of Excellence Institute, where we literally just would go into to youth sports programs and to high schools and to colleges, and and we would just help coaches uh, learn how to coach in the 21st century and really help them to learn how to be relationship driven coaches. And lo and behold, in in those workshops I was doing, uh, there'd be uh, men and women that owned companies uh, or were involved with, uh, you know, the the. I don't know, the police departments or anything else, but we're high level leaders. And they, and a couple of them would come up to me afterwards and say, Hey, I love this stuff. Could you teach my executives this? And cause we need to be better coaches as leaders rather than just being leaders and managers. And so I started doing that a little bit on the side. And uh, next thing you know, um, you know, I ended up speaking a lot and I uh, was doing a lot of glazier clinics cause I was a quarterback guy and uh, started doing some training there and, and uh, had some success, but Really, it was still always about just helping leaders get to a level that they couldn't get to by themselves and really teaching people how to coach uh, themselves better and then, and then actually apply a lot of the principles, biblical principles in the secular world, whether it's with the DEA leaders, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency out at Quantico. I was teaching out there for a while and, and then helping a lot of companies. And, and then that led to uh, working with professional sports teams and, um, and also the, the military, where now I spend a lot of time um, I work, you know, I primarily, uh, I work with the Texas Rangers, um, the Dallas Stars, and then, and then also the, uh, the, US, uh, the Navy Special Warfare Center where I work, where I train Navy SEAL instructors and also mentor and coach Navy SEAL commanders. Um, and, and it's, it's been great because um, I love diversity and I, and I love variety, uh, but I also love high speed, high performing leaders. And, and uh, you know, I spent some time with you, Tyler, and, and some of those trainings, and I don't have all the answers, but what I do know is is I love being around people that are hungry to learn, and that's what I want to do too. So that's why I'm, I'm glad to be with you today too. No doubt. I have definitely uh, taken my fair share of notes and wisdom away from every opportunity I've heard you speak and be in the room. Um, I also know you, you know, part of the, my affinity for you is uh, you helped build uh, Appalachian State football before they handed Northern Iowa a, a big defeat in the national championship game the year after I graduated. So. Um, being a, a guy that spent some FCS time coaching football is always uh, great to connect with those people as well. Um, you talked a little bit about your journey and kind of some of that transformation. Can you talk maybe a little bit more? I think you're kind of skirting it a, a little bit. Is there a coach or mentor you can talk a little bit more about that, that really elevated you more than others? Well, you know, I, I think, I think there's actually a couple and um, you know, for me, uh, that guy that, that uh, helped change my life big time was Scotty Kessler that, that taught me how to coach uh, biblically and integrate my faith into coaching. And he's a lot of the stuff I teach comes from the principles he's put together, but, and he's actually a Pacific Lutheran guy. Um, he worked with Frosty Westering, which again, for those people listening that haven't heard of Frosty, perhaps the greatest thing you could do to help your career is go get his, his book. And Frosty passed away a while ago, but um, get his book, uh, make the big time where you are. And, and uh, Frosty was very influential with me. I've spent some time with him and, and um, as an ex-Marine uh, drill instructor that he was and to see him coach and, and be relationship driven was really cool. Uh, the other guy that influenced me quite a bit was Jerry Moore at Appalachian State, you know, and, and Jerry was a guy that made us go home at night. Um, yeah, we won a lot, you know, and Jerry won three national titles and, and everything else. But, but I, I think what I came away with from there was, was, you know, he, he made us go home at night and we'd come in early in the morning, but you know, our families are sleeping in the morning. So, yeah. so we didn't miss a whole lot. And then we'd he'd make us go home at night. 
Uh, the other thing is he wouldn't allow us to cuss people out at practice or on the game field or use sarcasm a whole lot. So at, at one point in my career, that was like 90% of my style. So I had to make some adjustments, <laughs> man. And, uh, but, but he was just a wonderful mentor and still is to this day. And, and, you know, even some of the characters in my books are based upon him. And, and so, yeah, those, those people really were, were influential for me. You, uh, turn from a question I had planned you the sarcasm part. Um, yeah. Had a, had a, quite a few coaches that, that dealt, you know, their good hands of that out as well. Um, why can that be, especially in the coaching realm, just such a, a, a detriment to maybe the message that you're really trying to convey or the thing you're really trying to coach up? That's a great point. Um, well, first of all, you know, I grew up on sarcasm. I grew up in Minnesota in the Midwest and <laughs> yeah. you know, just like you have. And, and, you know, that's how we live. That's how we roll. And so I'm good at it. Uh, that's the other thing. I'm not I don't I don't <laughs> say I'm arrogant about anything, really. But I am I am good at, at fighting with sarcasm. But yeah. Um, the 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 reality too about sarcasm is uh, it's just like anything else you know when I worked the Navy SEALs one of the things that they actually teach teach the operators is hey sarcasm can be a great tool when you're in a dire situation and so what we talk about is there's really only two times that that sarcasm is a good tool and one of them is uh, when you're in a dire situation you know they, they you know and you can make fun of the situation you know like maybe you know you you, you uh, you're in a situation where your budget was cut and, and, uh, and, and you're sitting around as a staff and you're going, Oh, you know, this is terrible. This is finally somebody goes, well, you know, at least they didn't take our coaching gear, you know? And, right. and so you can make fun of it and hopefully deescalate the emotional temperature of the room and, and help improve the psychological safety of the room. Right. Cause those two things are so important. And we've been teaching a lot about that in crisis right now. But the other, the other thing is um, sarcasm, you know, in the Greek, the word sark means uh, tearing of the flesh. And, it, and sarcasm is like, you know, it's always at someone else's expense. And, and the problem with sarcasm, by, by the way, the, the other time to use sarcasm that's okay or beneficial is when you make fun of yourself as a leader. <laughs> uh, that, that, helps, that helps, again, make sure people yeah. realize you don't think you're all that and you're humble. But um, the, the problem with sarcasm is there, it's, it's like cancer. You know, where's the line? You know, is a little cancer okay? Is, is a lot, you know? And other than those two situations I just discussed with you, there's really no reason to use sarcasm. And so, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I was challenged with early in my career was a guy said, hey, if, if you have to use sarcasm or fear and intimidation and shaming to motivate people, you're not a very good coach. And I was like, man, I, I, I got to get better because if I take those things out of my, my leadership, what do I got left? And so that really spurred me on. I don't know if that, that's what you're looking for, but yeah, sarcasm thing is, is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Yeah. Tightrope. Tightrope. Yeah. I appreciate you expanding on that a little bit. Um, spending uh, the time around the great teams that you have, um, what's usually the missing piece you see on teams these days when it comes to accountability? Yeah, you know what? Um, everybody throws that word accountability around. And, and uh, you know, I think the first thing to realize is that there's, there's kind of three categories of accountability that, that, I, that I deal with when I'm talking with high-performing teams, whether it's in the military or, or in sport or, or in the, the, you know, the, the boardroom. Um, and, and just to, to help your, your listeners here, the, the first level is below-average teams have no accountability. And remember, accountability just means that – that you're going to remind each other of your responsibilities and you're going to do your freaking job at the end of the day, you're going to take ownership. 
and you're going to own your responsibilities. And when we talk to leaders, what we really tell them is, remember, accountability isn't lording over your supervision. It's, it's actually just reminding them of their responsibilities. That's it. It's not emotional. You know, and we always tell coaches, you're going to be emotional, but you can't coach emotionally. You know, it's ridiculous. Just, just remind them if they don't do their job, replace them and get, or, 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 or coach them up and get them better. And then if they still don't want to do it, give somebody else their duties. You know, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not rocket science, but the low average teams have no accountability. Average teams, the coaches and the bosses do all the accountability. And then on high performing teams, the players themselves or the, or the, the team within the employees themselves, they actually hold each other accountable. And, and the bosses are just part of that process. And they create a culture where, where everyone takes ownership and, and is holding each other accountable. We see that, you know, you know right now, and, and I know this podcast may come out later, but the last dance is on right now. And, and you know, and everybody's, everybody's talking about this and talking about that. What, you know, and, and, and the deal is the Bulls finally figured out a way. And I was actually coaching in Chicago when they won their third world title. And, and I can remember vividly, you know, hey, the, the whole deal there was they figured out how to hold each other accountable. It wasn't just Michael Jordan. It was a combination of when Phil Jackson got in there and then they brought players in uh, like Dennis Rodman, as crazy as he was, that guy, man, he did his job and, yeah. and did it well. And, and then they brought in Cartwright. They brought in all these other guys. And the next thing you know, they had a great group of guys that wanted to hold each other accountable. So to me, that's the separator. Instead of talking about accountability, just, just assess your team. Who's doing the accountability? And if all the, if all the coaches or leaders are doing it, you're not elite. You're just not there yet. And then you got to work on it. Yeah, I see sometimes in the high school world, it's just training other kids to assess their team's accountability. And then you, know, like you just, said, just remind them. Yeah, okay. yeah you, and you just used a good word, train them. You got to educate people first, right? You know, you yeah. got to take, take them from information to, to really a good understanding of it and comprehension. And then how to apply it? You know, how do I hold somebody accountable? And then you got to teach them the art of communication, of of how do I have a conversation with somebody who's not doing their job and how do I confront and clarify? And I mean, there's a lot to it because a lot of teams have been really jacked up and families and marriages have been jacked up because people understand the science, the, yeah, I got to hold them accountable, but they don't understand the art of, of, of doing it. And that takes, that takes some teaching, like your training, like you said. For sure. Um, one of the things I've enjoyed hearing you speak about in the past is, uh, the three types of employees or teammates we often find ourselves surrounded with. Can you talk a little bit about those, those three types? Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I want to make clear, you know, I, I, I'd love to say I can help with all this stuff, but that's not true. I don't think there's anything new under the sun. I just think there's new ways to say things, maybe hear things or, you know, and, and so when I heard this, I heard it in a little different context of what I'm going to tell you, but man, it really clicked with me. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we, we, we've kind of put people into three categories in the 21st century. There's, there's what we call champions or winners, and then there's contributors, and then there's survivors. And basically the way this works is a survivor is someone that has found a way to keep their job, and all they care about is keeping their job. They're definitely a me person, not a we person. They, to be cliche, you know, they, they are you know, I remember talking to a guy one time in a pro pro staff. He was, I've been on this, I've been in this organization 27 years and I've, I've gone through six managers, you know, and, and I looked at him and I said, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing because at the end of the day, that means that person has kind of just waffled probably a lot. I mean, six managers, 
You never you made it. One you, of them. I, I mean, not not one guy was like, "I disagree with you." And so, and, and I understand, you know, people may misinterpret, you know, the loyalty factor, which is good. But but at the same time, I always tell people, man, you know, if if you're not kind of ticking somebody off at least once or twice, or or, or bowing up a little bit before your beliefs. You know, I mean, what are you doing? Are you a chameleon? Are you just kind of waffling? And so, so survivors are experts at becoming chameleons and just acquiescing to everybody. Now, contributors are a good thing. Uh, we love to have contributors. Contributors are people that not only uh, are, are all in and are a we person, but then they do their job uh, every single day. You know, somebody asked me, I was talking to the USA uh, junior national team coaches, and, and they asked me, what's the difference between good and great? And I said, you know, well, we've got a saying in pro ball, good, you do it for a season, great, you do it for a career. And, and I think contributors are people, again, that, that, that they do their job day in and day out. They are, you know, their greatest ability is their dependability. And so, so I, I think, you know, a contributor does this. They do their job and, and, and they do it well every single day. They show up and they produce. They do their job. Now, a champion or a winner in our, in our context of our conversation not only are they a contributor and a we person, but they actually make the people around them better. So again, trying to grow our players and grow our staff and people from, you know, hey, get out of survival mode and, and start thinking about how you can actually be a contributor here and then how you can actually impact the people around you and raise the level. And, you know, when you start thinking about people, you're going, well, who did that? You know, who did that really well? And you're going, well, Ray Lewis did it. You know, he's one example. And then you, and then you go, well, who else? And you're going, well, you know, man, it, it looks like, um, you know, I mean, you could go in the hockey world and you could talk about uh, Yamir Yager and how he got with the Penguins, how that whole changed, that whole team changed. And then LeBron, you know, boom. And it's not just because they're great players and they produce. They actually want to help their teammates get better. And that's that's unique. Yeah. The uh, the pro athletes you just talked about there, um, they're passionate, relentless, and full of optimism. You know, you call that being a pro. Um, I know from one of our – interactions you gave a wristband it's one of the ones I, I rotate on my wrist uh, mm -hmm. when I'm feeling I need that reminder but can you talk to us uh what it means to be a pro yeah you know again this came when I was I was with the Pittsburgh Pirates for nine seasons and and uh you know we were in the bottom third of the of, the, of Major League Baseball and payroll which means we can't buy players uh, which means you know we're not the Yankees we're not the Dodgers with a 220 million dollar payroll and I can just go get a free agent so what that meant was we had to be great at developing. And, and so for us, that meant we had to draft really well and then develop the player really well throughout our system. And that meant we had to turn boys into men because only men play at the big league level that, that can handle all that comes with that. Yeah. So, so one of the things we had to, you know, we, we started to talk about is, you know, the greatest compliment a pro athlete can give to another athlete is when they say you're a pro's pro. And, you know, when, when Peyton Manning says Tom Brady is a great quarterback, that's, that's the greatest compliment when a peer tells you you're a pro. And, and so we had to define the word pro. And, and, and Kyle Stark of the Pirates came up with this, and I loved it. Um, pro means that you're passionate, you're relentless, and you take ownership of what you do in the context of how we were trying to get players to understand, hey, if you want to be a pro, this is what you should be doing. And, and so one of the things that I've done is I've just adopted and adapted that to all the different um, kind of environments I'm in, whether I'm at a marriage conference, doing a marriage conference, you know, are you a pro spouse? Are you passionate about your marriage? Are you relentless? And by the way, relentless doesn't mean you just don't quit. That's one meaning. The other meaning is you can actually, you're creative. You find ways to solve problems because yeah. you're relentless. And, and so are you relentless in your marriage? And, and, are, and, are, and do you take ownership? 
you know, sure enough, you go to a counselor, the first thing you're going to do is, is, is make you own up to what you're not doing well. So, so whether it's marriage, whether it's sports, whether it's, um, you know, being an executive, all of the above, being a dad, being a mom, can you be a pro? You know, are you passionate, relentless? And, and the big one for me, and Kelly McGregor was another huge mentor in my life, the former yeah. president of the Colorado Rockies who passed away roughly a decade ago. And, you know, Kelly always talked about ownership is everything. You know, if you can get people to take ownership where now they're self-motivated, you got a whole nother animal, man. And and now that's to me, great pros, they take ownership, man. They don't just they don't just talk about doing stuff. They actually do it. And and by the way, if it goes well, they'll own it. If it goes badly, they own it. So it's a big thing today. With uh your time down uh near Coronado and and have you read uh Jocko's Extreme Ownership? Sure have. I'm reading that right now. So uh, reading yeah, it this morning. So you're <laughs> striking. Yeah. The yeah. And, 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 yeah. You know, and, and it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I know, I don't know Jocko personally, but I know a lot of guys that have deployed with Jocko sure. and have been, yeah. have been his commander too. And, and they, they speak well of him. He's a real deal. Yeah. No, no doubt. A, a friend of mine had, had bought that book for my birthday and he, he bought a good book for me. <laughs> I love it. That's right. Um, so, uh, Thinking about student athletes, um, I think uh, just like we talked about, you know, kind of you got to teach them and train them sometimes what, what accountability might be. Um, same thing with, I think, the concept of mental toughness, but maybe what's one little bite-sized uh, piece of advice that student athletes can take to sharpen their sword of mental toughness? Well, I think it starts with, and it's funny you brought up Jocko, because I'll think i tie something into it that may help your, your listeners too with Jocko, but I think the first thing is you got to decide that you're going to be mentally tough. And, you know, there's a great book called anti-fragile that's out there. And, you know, and I teach this all the time and I've talked to my own children and um, there's three stages, um, you know, uh, of, of mental toughness in according, you know, and the way we teach it. And, and in the bay, by the way, the premise of the book is some organizations and companies when they face adversity crumble and some rise up and are stronger than they were before. And so, what we talk about is there are three stages of mental toughness. Uh, the first stage is fragile. Something happens to you and you break just any, anything. It's just, you're, you're easily broken and, and mentally or physically or emotionally not good. Right? So that's the first stage. The second stage is resilient. And you know, my oldest son Colt is, is uh, finishing up his PhD in, in, in uh, mental performance and sports psychology. And he's also a, a mental conditioning coach for the Colorado Rockies. And, he and I talk a lot about this, but you know, the mental, the, the, the sports psychology world is talking so much about resilience and it's important, but the definition of resilience is that you can return to your original form. So you face some adversity, you get whacked around a little bit and you can make it back to your original form. And that's good, but it's not the final stage. What we really want to do is develop people and athletes that, that when they, they, not only are they resilient, but they become anti-fragile. And a great example of this is if we break a bone in our arm, um, once that thing gets reset, it actually is going to calcify over right at the point of the break. And now that bone is going to be stronger than it was before, yep. which now you become more anti-fragile. So the, the $64,000 question is in mental toughness, where are you at in those stages? And when adversity hits you, do you become even stronger than you were before? Because you should, which means now, just to put a bow on this and to bring it back full circle, What's the advice? Well, you better see adversity and crisis as an opportunity. And if you can't, that your mental toughness is just going to be a band-aid. 
and it's not going to really, really get to the core and help you be as strong as you need to be. And, and by the way, seeing crisis as an opportunity means you need to start speaking to yourself in a different way. And, and Jocko has got a video out that you can grab on YouTube. I just threw it into one of my newsletters and, and it's a two minute video called good. Yeah. And he just talks, yeah, he just talks about how, how, you know, every time his, his, uh, his subordinates would come to him and, and they said, I, I don't want to ask you because you're just going to say good. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, no, every time I tell you something's bad, you just go good. We'll figure it out. Good. I'm going to find another way. Good. I lost my job. Good. I'll get another job. You know, Hey, I blew my knee out. Good. I'm going to be stronger after this. And that's that anti-fragile attitude that, I truly believe you got to speak into yourself because, you know, how we speak to ourselves is a big, big deal. Big deal. No doubt. I, once I figured out adversity meant opportunity in life, uh, you know, is a game changer for me personally through navigating the times we do and the world we're in. Um, Amen. So if you could hop into a DeLorean, get in the time machine and go visit 16-year-old Rod, I appreciate the, the 80s reference, by the way, the DeLorean. I love yeah, it. You know, uh, it's a great, great movie. Uh, I saw one of the coaches I know, they did a, an 80s movies bracket during COVID, and it came down to Back to the Future and Top Gun. Mm. I was like, yeah. that's tough, you know, good stuff. But uh, um, so if you could get in Marty's DeLorean, go visit 16-year-old you. Um, from working alongside some of the best in the military and sports, what piece of advice would you want to remind yourself? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's two things that come to mind for me. And by the way, you know, you, you just really have no idea where your life's going to end up. I never anticipated doing what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm blessed to do it. But, you know, like I said, I, I thought I'd be a college coach forever, right? You know, and, and that would have been great. But um, you got you to go where God's leading you. And, and uh, so number one for me is I would tell myself, hey, trust God. He's got a plan for your life. And, um, and, and there are times when he's, he's there for you and you didn't even know it. And, and, you know, and, and, and I was a guy that, that once I got to college, you know, I, I, uh, I, I dabbled in a lot of stuff with alcohol and, you know, I joke around and say, Hey, I'm, I might be the only three book author with an 0.00 GPA his first <laughs> semester at college, but I was really good at darts and drinking beer, but, um, and playing pool. But so I think, you know, trust God and, 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 you know, he's got a plan for your life and, and, and follow that plan. But the second thing too is important is, you know, what focus on helping other people get what they want. I, I, I think, you know, great coaches, you know, they, they can help people get to a level they couldn't get to by themselves. And, and so for me, um, I, I, Zig Ziglar said it years ago, if you help other people get what they want, eventually you'll get what you need. Just trust that that'll happen. So be, be others focused and, and, uh, and, and it all come together. Great advice. Uh, last question we always like to ask our guests here. Uh, how do you define success? Yeah, you know, it's, that's another really good question. Um, and one of the things I do, as you know, you've been through a couple of my workshops and seminars. I always, there's three questions that we ask every leader that they need to be able to answer so they have a solid philosophy. And that is, number one, why am I here? What's your why, right? The whole Simon Sinek thing. What's your purpose statement? And then number two, um, what's, you know, what's your leadership philosophy? Cause that's important because high clarity equals high performance. And if you don't have clarity in your own philosophy, you're not gonna be able to do it for others. Um, how do you measure success is the last question. And, you know, for a long time, Tyler, I just wanted rings. I'd go to conventions and everybody else had rings, but I didn't. So I just wanted a championship ring. And then, you know, you get a couple of those and now what? So for me, um, it's two things. One, I measure success by who my people become. Um, that, that is not what they're doing. I could care less if they're 
a CEO or an owner of a pro baseball team, or if they're a guy who just started a plumbing business and he's, and he's, you know, solving people's problems in their houses. So it's who they become. That's the big thing. And then it's just like my kids. I don't care what they do. I just, I want to, I don't care about who they become as, as men and, and women. The, the third, the second thing is I want to work with people that impact people. Um, I, I am, I'm done working with people that just talk about, about helping other people. I, the way I measure success is the people I work with, how are they, are they leaving in other people? So, you know, I'm a big legacy builder guy. I want you to build your legacy into, into other people. So long after you're gone, you've made an impact on generations, both at work and at home. You know, my, my biggest win, I hope, is, um, you know, my kids, two of them are married and one, my third one just graduated from college. And one of my biggest hopes is that, that they focus on legacy, not career. That, that to me, if, if, they're, if they're doing that, then that's a huge success for my wife and I. And, and like I said, you know, my daughter, she runs a preschool and she got a degree in early childhood education. You know how many people told her that's the worst job in the world. You're not going to get paid anything. It's like, it's more than just follow your passion. It's, it's what you're calling, you know, and, 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 and she's helping families and, and, and all that. So now that, that would be me, man. You got to trust God. And then you got to, it's got to be about other people helping them find their dreams and help them realize where they want to go.